This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Roxana Espos, Palace Shaw, and Bernadine Dorn, I'm broadcasting in the spirit and the memory of Malik Ali. That was the singer, songwriter, and freedom fighter Tom Morello with Let Freedom Ring, our podcast's hopeful theme song. Tom's generosity is an inspiration. He shows up whenever people are coming together under the banner of freedom in search of peace and justice. We're coming to you, as is usually the case, from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, stolen lands stewarded by many peoples and lineages for millennia. Note to our traditional land acknowledgement here because I was talking to some neighbors who, while they support acknowledging the original peoples, point out that their ancestors were also workers who built this city. They were exploited, disempowered, disenfranchised, and eventually displaced often facing massive state violence. And so we can, of course, acknowledge a tangle of oppression without creating a hierarchy of injustice. Chicago is large. It contains multitudes. Chicago is a place of outsized and crazy complexity built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African-ancestored people escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. Justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers, cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers and activists, all of us who stand on humanity's freedom side, which I assume includes anyone listening to this podcast, can and should remember and honor all of it. The long history of stolen land, genocide, exploitation, and we can pledge to work every day to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. Our first traditional feature is the quiet contemplation of a poem, our moment of Zen. And here are two short poems that meditate on the problem of freedom and its costs from our friend, the poet, essayist, and memoirist, Elizabeth Alexander. The first poem is called Amistad. After the tunnel of no return, after the roiling Atlantic, the black Atlantic, black and mucilaginous, after skin to skin, in the hold, and the picked handcuff locks, after the mutiny, after the fight to the death on the ship, after picked handcuff locks and the jump overboard, after the sight of no land and the zigzag course, after the babble which settles like silt into silence and silence and silence, and the whack of lashes and waves on the side of the boat, after the half cup of rice, the half cup of seawater, the dry swallow and silence, after the sight of no land, after two daughters sold to pay off a father's debt, after Sinke himself a settled debt, 
After white golf between stances, the space at the end, the last quatrain. The second poem is in the same series, and it's called Cinque Ridu. I will be called bad motherfucker. I will be venerated. I will be misremembered. I will be Sangpie, Sinkes, Joseph, and end up Sinke. I will be remembered as upstart, rebel, rabble rouser, leader. My name will be taken by black men who wish to be thought righteous. My portrait will be called the Black Prince. Violent acts will be committed in my name. My face will appear on Sierra Leonean currency. I will not proudly sail the ship home, but will go home, where I will not sell slaves. Then will choose to sail off to a new place, Jamaica, West Indies. In America, they called us Amistads. The cook we killed, Celestino, was mulatto. Many things are true at once. Yes, I drew my hand across my throat in the courtroom at that Cur Ruiz to hex his thieving, killing self. Yes, I scuffled here and there instead of immolate. Yes, I flaunted my gleam and spring. No, I did not smile. No, I never forgot the secret teachings of my fathers. No, I never forgot who died on board, who died on land, who did what to whom, who will die in the future, which I see unfurling like the strangest dream. That was two poems by Elizabeth Alexander. Our second regular feature is a free write, so pause the podcast for just a moment and write wildly, no need for edits or revisions, in response to this prompt. What is your origin story? Where did it all begin for you? We'll be right here when you get back. Email us at underthetreepod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast, for clips and interviews. And follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast. I keep turning over and over the parameters and the architecture of this political moment, complex, contradictory, characterized by escalating and overlapping crises. I feel on the verge. I don't want to focus my energy and attention on movement building. Beyond campaigns, projects, policies, or organizations, how do we find multiple ways to weave our work together into a sturdy quilt or a mighty and irresistible social upheaval that advances the cause of peace and freedom, joy and justice in our time? I was thinking about all this when I sat down a couple of weeks ago with an old friend. Here's a bit of our conversation. I'm here with Randolph Stone, who was the director of the Mandel Legal Clinic at the University of Chicago for over 30 years, a public defender in Cook County for four or five years, and mainly a neighbor and a friend. And so um, it's always terrific to sit down with you. I think the last time we saw each other outside of home was um, at the anniversary of the end of the death penalty in Illinois, a kind of a raucous celebration. Yeah, it was a good celebration. It and, was indeed. Yeah, it was um, 
purposeful. Yeah, and I was impressed with so many things. I was impressed with who gathered. I'm always impressed with that story. And I thought maybe we'd begin by you talking a bit about something that's kind of unprecedented in the country, which is Illinois got rid of the death penalty. No one would have predicted it 10 years before it happened. But a lot of determined people, including journalists, community activists, mothers, inmates themselves, um, really did away with the death penalty. I'd just be interested in your take on that story. Yeah, I, I talk about it quite a bit because I just thought it was a fantastic story. And whenever people talk about change and progress and how difficult it is, I remind them, remember when Illinois had the death penalty? Right. And who would have thought that we could get rid of it? And so it was, as you pointed out, a uh, um, coming together of folks from all across various lines, you know, um, people who had been previously incarcerated, people who were on death row. A lot of great lawyers were involved, politicians, journalists, um, and created um, a movement and actually, you know, abolished the death penalty in Illinois. This is a fantastic story. I hope somebody writes a book about it. Well, I think probably people are writing books about it. One of the things that strikes me as I understand the story, and I played a very peripheral role, but I was a huge admirer, and you played a much more central role. But one of the things that impressed me was that it did exactly what you said. It went beyond organizations, this campaign or that campaign, this project or that project. It became a movement. How does that happen? Yeah, well, you know, how does it happen? I mean, if we could create a formula for it we, we and replicate it, we could get rid of a lot more exactly. oppressive uh, things in, in the society. Um, who, you know, who knows? Yeah, I want to come back to that. But mm. I want to also point out that you were not just um, a participant. You were an important lawyer in that movement. So you had a few death penalty cases. I did. I had um, several death penalty cases. I had... And, you know, death penalty work uh, is some of the most difficult work that a lawyer can do in the sense that it takes so much out of all the participants. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the lawyers as well as the, the clients, uh, the people that are charged, the victims. You know, somebody's been killed. Right. Um, and the judges, you know, it's a really— um, I hated the work, to right. be honest. Uh, every death penalty case I had, I felt like I, you know, gave up a pound of flesh or something. Exactly. I mean, it was just, um, but yeah, I was involved in the Pontiac case, which was a death penalty case, the uh, largest death penalty case in, in the country at the time. Where That's the one I'd like you to talk about. Tell people well, a bit about yeah, Pontiac. Pontiac. There was a, a rebellion at one of the prisons, the Pontiac Prison in, in Illinois. And as a result of the rebellion, three um, guards were killed and a number of others were injured, millions of dollars of damage to property. Um, and the, you know, the prisoners were subjected to um, torture and, um, isolation uh, for a period of time. And, and the rebellion occurred because of the conditions in the prison, right. you know, that were just terrible. But as a result of the incident, 
uh, I think, 17 uh, Pontiac prisoners were indicted for triple murder. Right. And it was and subject to the death penalty case. And that, it, it's interesting because out of that case, uh, community members rallied and created a, um, a movement around prison conditions in addition to the particular case. Right. And it was integral in, 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 in creating this momentum toward eventually abolishing the death penalty. But there were a lot of great lawyers involved in that case as well. Michael Deutsch and Jeff Haas were on that case. From the People's Law Office. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Skip Gant, uh, Roosevelt Thomas, uh, Marianne Jackson, a lot of great, uh, Leo Holt was the uh, quarterback of the case who went on to become a judge, uh, one of the greatest criminal defense lawyers and judges uh, in Cook County. Right. Um, and uh, the beautiful thing about the case, obviously, well, it, eventually it was severed. Ten of us went to trial at the same time. Chokwe Lumumba was involved in the case, whose son is now the mayor of Jackson. Uh, he was once the mayor of Jackson, and his son is now the mayor. That's right. Yeah, Lou Myers was involved in the case. A lot of, a lot of great lawyers. Um, but anyway, they severed the case. Uh, so 10 of us went to trial. Um, two months for jury selection. Uh, you know, hundreds of pretrial motions filed. Um, about uh, uh, two months of actual trial. A uh, jury goes out, comes back with not guilties of all all defendants in probably three hours. Wow. In three, four hours. Um, and this is the early 80s? Or? This was, uh, yeah, early, early 80s. 80s yeah. 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 In fact, the uh, the verdict came back, I think, on Mother's Day, 1981. Wow. Yeah, because my dad died in, in 1980, right in the middle of the, mm. of the trial. Um, so, yeah, that was, but I've had a number of other death penalty cases as well, um, but that one was probably the most intense. Right. Uh, and a lot of the guys who were involved in that case, lawyers and people, prisoners, uh, are still active and, 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 and involved. Right. So right. it was, it was, um, it was quite an event. It was a huge victory. Yeah. The Pontiac 10 is what they were called, right? It was, it was the Pontiac 17, right. and then it became the Pontiac 10 who right. actually went to trial. Did any of those, have any of those folks entered the free world since then? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. My client, uh, Albert Jackson, right. Omega, uh, is out. Uh, where he works for TASC, okay. uh, Treatment Alternatives for Special Communities, I think is the, what it's called. And he's, you know, uh, uh, Benny Lee know. is out. Benny is uh, he actively involved in creating an organization for returning citizens. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, most of the folks are now out. Uh, some have passed on, but— uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, second chances, and certainly some of these folks are good examples of once you get a second chance, you can develop a really productive and powerful life. No question. Um, but, you know, I'm always reminded of our mutual friend, Ronaldo Hudson, who says, you know, the real problem is I was, I, not only did I never have, but the guys that were in with never had a first chance. And he's talking about 
education. He's talking mm-hmm. about poverty. Mm-hmm. And I've heard you talk about this uh, many times, including at the um, Congressional Black Caucus uh, around the drug wars. But, you know, where you said, you know, that you, the idea of having a drug war that's centered in criminal legal questions is nuts because it's not where the problem lies. The whole drug wars thing was so misguided and uh, i don't know if it, i don't know if some people say it was intentionally misguided right uh as a way of oppressing uh communities of color uh and it's interesting now that we're in the opioid thing how how people have at least given lip service to the idea that maybe the criminal justice system is not the way to proceed right. in right. solving some of these difficult uh, issues. Well, it's interesting, of course, that with the opioids, which a majority of white folks involved, it becomes a public health matter when it was, you know, crack cocaine or heroin, You're right. then it was, it was a criminal, criminal justice matter. matter. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right, right. So but, it, but maybe maybe we're, maybe we're making progress. Well, at least let's claim it, even if we're not. Let's <laughs> yeah. claim it and run with it. Um, but so the, the Pontiac 10 was a big one. Did you, I, I believe I heard you say once that you witnessed an execution. I did. Uh, I wrote a piece about it. Um, I think it was the death of uh, was it Charles Walker, I think, was the last person who was executed in Illinois. And I was the public defender of Cook County at the time. And uh, I thought it was important that somebody opposed to the death penalty go down and witness this execution. Um, I don't know if it was a good idea or not, but anyway, it was, it I was thought rough. it was. It was rough for you, though, I'm sure. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, anyway, I went, I witnessed it, and then I wrote a little piece about it um, so that people could actually get the benefit of witnessing it through me. Uh, people who were opposed to capital punishment, opposed to the death penalty. And, uh, yeah, I had uh, nightmares about it for for a long time after. I remember going over to Operation Push after Reverend Jackson witnessed uh, an execution, I believe, in Texas, mm-hmm. and he was shattered. I yeah. mean, I, I've he's a strong person. I've seen him in many many situations, but he was um, as reduced emotionally as I've ever seen him. Um, yeah, just the inhumanity of it. You know, the actual inhumanity of strapping somebody down in full oh, in full view of the public that's watching, uh, administering uh, the drugs that were designed to stop his stop the person's heart, and uh, it, it was almost it was surreal yeah. to just be there and yeah, and it it makes me think, Randolph, about. You describe when, once you see something like this, and you can't. It's you describe it as surreal. You can't quite believe the state of Illinois has the has the uh, ignorance to do such a thing, right. and how coarsening it is to the whole society. But you know, I jump from there in my own mind to to my weekly teaching at Stateville Prison. I look at the cruelty there, and I can't quite wrap my mind around it. I want to take everybody in America in there with me. I want them to see my class. I want them to see the guys for who they are, not perfect people, 
by any means, but neither are you, and neither am I. And that's uh, the cruelty of the system is just mind-boggling. Yeah, and it's pervasive. It's a word I yeah don't like using. But um, my first job out of law school, I was working at Neighborhood Legal Services in Washington, D.C., and I was a civil legal services lawyer. And my job was to represent people in two areas, some who were being evicted from their homes because D.C. was, this was in the 70s. Right. D.C. was in this gentrification mode that they've, and they've had recurring bouts with it. But um, in the second category of people were people who had um, these loans from furniture companies to buy furniture. And then the, the, the furniture store would wind up charging them three or four times as much as the furniture right, cost. Right. So those are my two categories of, of clients uh, for a year. Um, and uh, it was just so depressing right. um, to come to work and see people with their belongings in front of my office waiting for me to, to save them or right. to try to help them. Right. And uh, once again, the inhumanity, you know, the idea that you can just put people on the street uh, with their children yeah. and all of this belongings, right. uh, uh, you know, that you could take poor peoples uh, who are earning minimum wage, you could sign them to a contract that you knew was ridiculous and usurious and then uh, extract that all you could right. squeeze from them, you know, uh, and, you know, the death penalty is, is an extension of that process to a, to the nth degree, right. but there's a whole system of inhumanity, brutality, and, against poor people, people of color, um, that uh, it's just, a, it's amazing in a, in, a, in a way that we haven't been able to counteract it. I mean, we've, make, we've made progress and we'll continue to make progress, but uh, it's, uh, it's startling in a way. Yeah. Did you... As you were growing up, or as you were going to school, or as you were in the service, do you have a memory of a moment or moments or things that brought you to this kind of consciousness? I mean, you could have been anything. I'm sure your dad told you that once in a while. You could have been anything. You could have been a very successful corporate lawyer, and you chose this path, which is not which is not only a path of stress and strain and and kind of person your personality is involved and it's not just your work life it's you as a human being what brought you to that yeah that's a good question um i've had a lot of and there've been a lot of turning points you know um you know i i think i've always kind of my mom used to say well you've always been for the underdog and there you go that's that's your that, that's who you are and so how I got to be that way, I don't know. I mean, going through law school uh, was a very 
uh, tempting process. Yeah. I mean, in the sense that you begin to really question your values. Um, as you see people go off into the corporate world and making money and being successful uh, and being a black lawyer or law student also you kind of start questioning yourselves uh, I did it anyway um, you know what's the best way to uplift myself my community my my people you know is it maybe it's going to the corporate world and being a success in that way mm-hmm. uh, and which is not to denigrate people who make who, who make that choice right but for me, uh, fortunately, my instincts were reinforced in, in by, you know, a lot of people I met. When I went to Neighborhood Legal Services, there were two black lawyers who ran the program, Willie Cook and Billy Martin. And it was just so uh, refreshing to see these two black lawyers, right. both of whom could have done lots of other things, but they were devoted to what I thought was important. And that was real important to me. Mm-hmm. That really re- made me think, well, maybe I am doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, during my younger days, of course, I would see many of my friends get caught up in the criminal justice system. Um, you know, I had an uncle who was subjected to a police brutality it's a real sad story, and it affected the family uh, in a lot of ways. Um, and he was my favorite uncle. He taught me how to ride a bike. How, how old were How old were you when this? Happened? I, you know, I was prop when. Well, he was like fifteen years older than me. Mm. He's my mother's youngest brother. <clears throat> he went. He went in the military. Uh, served in the Korean War. Uh, he was uh, a, just a real bright. Um, uh, charismatic mm-hmm. guy, but his problem was he was argumentative. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a problem. This is his personality. Yeah. He liked to talk. He liked to engage people. Uh, he's standing outside of. He gets out of the service, gets an apartment. He buys a one of these beautiful chrome fifty six Chevrolets with all the chrome on it. You know, uh. And um, he's standing at a carryout restaurant. Cop, two cops come up. They engage in a, you know, conversation. He smarts off with them. They take him outside and they beat him brutally with uh, with their batons. I mean, they. My mom comes back from the hospital and she's just crushed mm. you know at the way he's he's looking mm. um and he never recovered wow. uh emotionally or psychologically you know physically he recovered but it just destroyed his life uh he became a very bitter guy a very um insular mm. almost a hermit type and it affected the whole family sure. you know um and that I think that was a motivating factor for me as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just I just couldn't understand how people. And you know, he's he was a litigious guy, so he got people to. Uh, he filed his own little lawsuit against this, 
the city and the police department. Of course, he lost, uh, and then he tried to appeal it. And by the time he tried to appeal it, I was I was in law school, and um, you know, I got another lawyer to help him with his appeal, and I kind of worked on it as well. Went to the Seventh Circuit, but he lost. Um, but it just destroyed him as a person. You know, I think people can recognize that if you are subject to arbitrary violence, anyone, it's very harmful. It, it disrupts your sense of of the normal world. But when it's an agent of the state doing it, right. and then the state supporting it, it has a resonance that just is unfathomable. I mean, it's so deep. And and so, you know, there, and then, you know, I had a couple of friends who were, got caught up in criminal justice system. And so I kind of knew, and, you know, I, I was older than most law students because I, you know, got out of the service and started up uh, starting a family. Um, so I didn't go to law school with the same sort of innocence or ideals that, um, some students went with. It's not really a bad idea to go to law school a little later because, you know, I feel this way about education. I think that you can go in and get socialized into the mainstream of what that profession offers, but you can also, if you're a little older, you can go in with your eyes more open and decide what you want to use it for, not what it's going to use you for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So... um as a defense lawyer, a public defender um, for many years running the Mandel Clinic, one of the things you have, you know, been, I think, very instrumental in is listening to your clients, listening to the people who you're serving, rather than thinking you know everything. And so I'd just be interested in how one makes that turn um, towards saying, not only is there a different story than the story the prosecutor is putting forward, but I want to listen to that story as closely as I can. And I know you've been that kind of lawyer, and you've actually trained a lot of lawyers to look at the world that way. Uh, say a word about that. Yeah, that's so crucial, um, the understanding who you're serving, who you're, who you're serving, what, what's your purpose. And, you know, I've always kind of felt that the purpose is to give your client this opportunity to present his or her story uh, in a way that they want it presented. There you are. Um, hmm. uh, and it's, it's can be difficult. You know, it's not a, uh, you have to train yourself to accept the fact that being a lawyer is a, being a, a facilitator. It's hmm. being a, a servant. It's hmm. being a, a helper, you know, you're, you're trying to help somebody solve a very difficult crisis situation in their life, you know, and it's takes a, takes a while. I had a client, I was in my, when I went to DC, I worked in the public defender's office in DC, which is supposed to be one of the better public defender offices in the country because they got small case loads and, you know, people come from Harvard and Yale and, and, and it's a very competitive environment, but it's client centered. I, one of my first case that I had when I was there as a kid who was, he charged with a gun case, 
uh, and uh, the lawyer who had his case was being transferred to a different division. I was the new lawyer. So people kind of dump cases that they don't want on the new lawyer when you get there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and this kid, uh, the, the, the lawyer told me, she said, um, this is a simple case, um, the, but the kid won't take the deal. And I said, well, what was the deal? She said, I can get him, you know, uh, very short time served and, and probation. Um, and it's, it's a cut and dry case because the kid was caught with a gun. Mm-hmm. And it's a strict liability situation in D.C. at the time. Right. You, you're in possession of a gun. It's illegal. Right. Um, and <laughs> so I said, okay. Uh, so I talked to the, I called the kid up and I said, um, you know, your court date is coming up. I, I'd like you to come in t- to talk to me before we um, go to court. And the kid says, uh, nah, I- I'll see you in court. Wow. I said, well, it would be better if we talk before we, we get to court. And he says, nah, I'll see you in court. So we get to court, and I, I tell the judge, well, I just met uh, Mr. So-and-so, so I'm going to need a, a continuance. And the judge says, okay, but, you know, we're going to trial on the next court date. So the kid, uh, we walk out of court, and I said, you know, uh, I need to talk to you, man. I, I can't represent you if you don't. He says, I, I need you to come to the office. He says, i tell you what, uh, why don't we take a ride uh, to my neighborhood? And I'll show you. And I said, okay, I, I can do that. So we we I, we get in my car. We drive across the the bridge to Southeast DC. And you know, if you've ever been to DC, you know there's two or three different DCs. Right. You know, there's the the monuments. <laughs> then there's the Upper Northwest, where all the people with with money and means live. And then there's Southeast DC, where you know the uh, you know, uh, the unemployed people live, the right. people with marginal um, incomes. Um, and so we're driving through his neighborhood, and he turns to me, looks at me, says, uh, so are, are you nervous? And I said, no, not really. He says, well, you look nervous. I said, well, I might be a little nervous. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, he takes me to the scene of this incident, and he explains to me he was in a fight. Guy pulled a gun on him. He wrestled the gun away. He ran in the store. The store owner sees him running in the store with the gun, calls the police. And and that's that's what happened. Right. Um, so I said, so he says, so that's why I can't plead guilty to anything, because right. I'm innocent. I didn't do it, right. right. I didn't do it, you know. Uh, so we go to trial, we win the trial, uh, the jury comes back with the not guilty, and the judge during the trial was a black judge, I'll never forget this guy, uh, and he he didn't appreciate the fact that I was litigating this case, and in fact, he calls me to the bench and he says, I, ch- I looked you up. I checked on you. I I know you've done death penalty work in in Illinois, but this is D.C. We don't have the death penalty, and this is not a death penalty case. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But that was, you know, 
And when the jury comes back, you know, the client starts crying, the client's mother starts crying, um, and the judge even had a little moisture in his eyes. Nice. You know, and he apologized to me. Nice. And it's an indication of, and that's how you have to, you have to invest in the client. Yeah. You have to let the client tell you which way to go. Sure. And it's not every lawyer who would say, sure, let's take a ride and I'll learn from you. Right. But, but in a way, that's really one of your calling cards as an as a advocate is, let me learn from you and we'll craft another story that's that's truer to what you think right. is going on. Exactly. And it's not like there's one version, but it is important that that version be told. Be told. Yeah. And I've had so many cases where, you know, cases I've lost, you know, and I'm in the back trying, you know, trying to comf comfort my client and my client is comforting me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, some of the most meaningful cases where the, the, the person is just appreciative of the work that you've done, allowing them to present their story. Yeah, exactly. That you've stood by them, even though you lost the case. Right. You know, uh, and people deserve to be heard. And I think that, you know, in my world of much less fraught world in some ways, but of teaching and learning. The first study I did of preschool teachers, one of the things that just was so remarkable to me was how many people said to me, nobody ever comes to listen to us talk about teaching. Everybody comes to tell us what to do. And it's kind of a beautiful, refreshing thing to, to listen and to allow yourself to be a learner rather than a know-it-all. I mean, you went to professional school, but that doesn't mean you know everything. No. Certainly not about this kid. And I, the thing I love about that story is it isn't a gigantic, life, world-changing thing. But for this kid, it mattered a lot. It mattered a lot. Yeah. yeah. It's so meaningful. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, we were talking about movement building and talking about the death penalty when we started. And I'm still so impressed. I think there's so many lessons to get from that. I mean, one of the lessons that I think often gets lost, especially when journalists or lawyers tell the story, is they tell their story about what they did. But just as in the days of slavery and abolition, you ask yourself, who drove that movement? It, yes, there was Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman and John Brown, very important. But to miss the fact that 90% of the energy came from the people themselves who were experiencing being enslaved and being enslaved workers. And the same, I think, is true of the death penalty. I think those guys were so important in terms of advocating for themselves. And I, I know many of them now personally, but at the time I was so impressed that the, the live from death row radio kind of thing that for folks who don't know, there was a, we would do this phone hookup where guys on death row would talk and it would be broadcast in, in these low frequency radio things. I think those things are huge and you can't build a movement without the folks who matter, who are experiencing it firsthand, I guess is the way to say it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, as lawyers, you kind of get, um, you get into the leadership mode where you're, you're, you think you're the driving forces. You're, you've got to control everything. You have to organize everything. And the good thing about the, the death penalty movement, <clears throat> there were some very key lawyers, Richard Cunningham and, right. and some other 
folks were really key. Um, but uh, as you pointed out, I mean, the, the people who were on death row, the families mm-hmm. of people who the were mothers, on death yeah. row, the yeah. mothers, the, you know, aunt, aunts and uncles, and um, and the non-lawyer organizers and movement people. It was it was a very holistic mm-hmm. movement, and I think that's the key to success. I think so too, and I think I'm all for everybody claiming victory and claiming their role. I think the journalists were important. The I journalists think were extremely. Eventually, even the uh, bourgeois New York, uh, Chicago Tribune and so on came out and editorialized against it. Eventually, I think George Ryan gets credit, even though he had to. People had to work on him, but I used to love hearing Ryan say, "I'm just a pharmacist from Kankakee," <laughs> you know. So he wasn't a lawyer. He wasn't a, right. a lifelong politician. And you think about that the the oath that healthcare workers take, you know, and they say we're going to make the world better, we're going to help people, and then you're putting them to death. I mean, what could be more? More of a contradiction. Um, so I'm still interested in the idea that all these projects, all these organizations came together to build a movement. I think we're at a point, but I could be wrong, correct me. I think we're at a point where in the country, even though it's not firm, there's a turning away from the narrative that prisons are serving public safety unequivocally. I think there's a turn against what's been called mass incarceration or the new Jim Crow. And that gives me a lot of hope. Um, And then I see organization after organization as existed during the death penalty fight. So we have um, the Illinois Prison Project, Parole Illinois, the Real Youth Initiative, PNAP, on and on. And I just wonder what you think, what, what is the magic sauce that brings this together? Or what are the big issues that we could unite around? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, I started law school in 1972. In 1972, uh, I, I remember taking a course called Police and Community or something like that. <clears throat> and it was taught by uh, Frank Remington and uh, I can't remember the other guy, Gold Gold. Might have been Goldberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, two great, two great, great guys. Uh, and uh, they used to get so mad at me. We'd be talking about policing, and I, I made some statement. I said, you know, if I had a, a dollar for every time the police stopped me and my friends in the, in the community, I could finance my law school education. <laughs> you know, sure. A little hyperbole. Yeah, but still, uh, it, the yeah, point was right. The point was right. Um, and, uh, we kept in touch over the years and, you know, I I look back on it when I got to start giving these talks about race and criminal justice in 1972, there were probably less than 300,000 people in jails and prisons in the entire United States. And people were talking about abolishing prisons. There were books, there were a couple books out about moving away from the incarceral state. Right. This was in 1972. Right. Flash forward 50 years later, we got 2 million people right. in jails and prisons in the United States of America. We're number one per capita uh, in terms of people locked up. So, 
And I'll, you know, I used to say, so, you know, I've been very successful <laughs> in terms of creating criminal justice reform. Uh, but if you look at the numbers, they're not there. No. Um, but yeah, can we, can, can you sense a little bit of a turn? Yes, you can. Um, the numbers are going slightly down in the last, you know, three, four years. Uh, people are talking about abolition in a way that they weren't uh, 10 years ago. Sure. And in the pages of New York Times for all places. Right. I mean, you know. Right. Uh, you know, so, yeah, I think that there is cause for optimism. Uh, there is cause for not celebration, but for hope that we may be able to, I mean, it, it makes sense, right? I mean, I always tell people, I always say, well, do, you know, defunding the police, you know, abolitions of prisons, uh, you know, what will we do? You right, know, and right. I said, well, let's, let's think about the world that we'd like to live in. Wouldn't you like to live in a world where police were unnecessary, where prisons were not needed. Mm -hmm. And so if you can think about it, then you have to, then you have to think about how can we get there? Right. Is it possible to get there? Remember when people were enslaved, right? you know, and, and people were sitting around thinking slavery is the way it's always going to be. How could it be otherwise? It can be otherwise. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah, we can, we can, we can get there, but it's, um, and, you know, my students, when I was teaching law school, some students would come in and they would get so frustrated. And they would say things like, Professor Stone, how can you do this for so long? Yeah. You know, I mean, don't you ever get discouraged? Uh, you know, I see, yeah, of course I get discouraged. Yeah. But it's the the idea is to be a part of the struggle right the idea is to be a part of the movement that is going to make a difference maybe not tomorrow maybe not next year but the idea is to be a part of it to be in it yeah um you know and you know live it today you know we don't dwell in the past we don't dream of the future we celebrate the moment yeah. and we're in the we're in the moment to make a difference and so that's what kept me going for 40 50 years yeah. and i hope it keeps other people going too yeah and i i feel maybe it's a function of my being old but i keep feeling an urgency and i feel like I do feel that the narrative is changing. I feel like humanizing, one of the things that is always important in any movement is humanizing those who've been dehumanized that allows us to, as a society, to carry on the way we do. So if the enslaved people have mothers and fathers and hopes and dreams and full humanity, then you can't do that. And the same is true for the Vietnamese. If the Vietnamese are full human beings you can't you can't just kill them wholesale so i feel like we're in that inflection point i also feel like we have a governor like no other and i'm impressed for example among the many things you've done working both sides of the street i was really impressed and you and i talked about it at the time when you took that position that was a thankless position on the um uh police advisory board was that what it was called it was good Police Accountability Task Force. Yeah, and I remember a lot of people, you know, 
progressive people say, oh, you, you shouldn't touch that, it's dirty. And you touched it and actually, I think, uh, came through it. Um, so that's working both sides of the street. You're an advocate, you're an activist, you're an organizer over here, you're a lawyer doing the best work over here. And then you say, well, the enemy wants to put this commission together. I think I'll join and see what I can do. And how one keeps one's integrity and balance in a world like that, I was watching with uh, bated breath. I think you guys did a great job. Yeah, it was, it was. Uh, you know, I initially said no. Of course. You know, when, uh, it's the kind of thing we wouldn't yeah. do. Uh, somebody called me and he said, uh, the mayor, Rahm Emanuel, is putting together a task force <laughs> what? on policing. <laughs> right. And we want you to be on. I said, no, I don't think so. Just, it's just the word Rahm Emanuel, we want you. Those That goes yeah. together not at all, you know. Um, but I gave it some thought. And I realized that we could, we could, maybe we can make a difference. You know, maybe we can do something um, that will leave a, a blueprint uh, for change. Um, and I, we did. If you actually, if people should read that report um, and just read the executive summary of the yeah. report. Yeah. And, um, Say the name of it again. The, the Police Accountability Task Force, the right. Chicago PATF. And, 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 and there's a website. Right. You can go to it. The stuff is still up. And what year was that that you issued your final report? Oh, man. That's I mean, Rahm Emanuel was mayor, so it was a while ago. Yeah. So it had to be 2012, maybe? Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just before he left. Um, or... Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's on, it's on, there's a website, there's a report and, you know, we had four community meetings right. around the city. Right. That were very well attended. And one of the things when, when I, when I was at the clinic, um, I, I wanted to start a police, um, accountability project. Mm -hmm. And I brought in Craig Futterman to start the, to start the project. And the reason I wanted to start that project was because, um, you know, people always talk about the, the you know, Laquan McDonald or the um, Abner Luima or, you know, Diallo or the, these big, big, big cases where mm -hmm. somebody gets killed. Mm -hmm. But what's really going on in the city, in addition to that, is this everyday brutality, this everyday disrespect, this everyday treating people like they're not human beings, uh, just disregarding people's, you know, we, we, and that came across in these public hearings where, you know, we had a, a, a young, young Mexican kid talking about he had just gotten off work. He's walking down the street. Uh, he got paid in cash. Uh, cops stop him, search him, uh, pull out his 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 pay money, and they tell him uh, this is a lot of money for a Mexican kid. Ooh. Um and and when he was telling the story, you could feel the emotion, right. just the the disgust, the disrespect. Uh, you know, a, a young brother driving down the street with his kids in the back seat of the car. Um, police pull him over. Uh, his kids are in the back seat. 
The police are on both sides of the car. One cop pulls out a gun, and he's tapping the back window. Oof. Where where the, the brother's kids are in the back seat. And he's just tapping on the window with the gun, you know. And then they let let him go. And and when he talked about it, you could feel the fear in his in his voice. You know, and these are the types of everyday situations that people in certain communities face from the police. Um and it's not uh it's not recognized, it's not acknowledged. It's not um, ameliorated. You know, there's yeah. no justice involved. Yeah. And people in, in other communities, they don't, they don't, in some, in some, some, some of them don't realize it. They don't, maybe they don't even think it happens. They're not aware of it. And then other, others just ignore it. Right. You know, and uh, so that's where I thought we could make a difference in, in that report. And if you read the report with the recommendations, um, it's really gives you a blueprint of how we could make some significant changes. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, uh, I think we can make incremental changes that are good. And you can also make big changes. Right, right. You know, you can just, and I think you have to do both. It's work, not an either or. Yeah, situation. you have to work toward both, and and nobody knows when the thing is going to come together and explode. But in the meantime, um, helping the enslaved workers escape isn't a bad idea, you know, <laughs> one by one. But you, this report. So, two questions really. One is what what are, given the architecture you describe, what are the three or four things that we could do pretty much immediately um, that are that incremental change that points towards bigger transformation? Well, I mean, one thing uh, that we argued for and that never happened was to create a, um, a working group of all of the players, the mayor, the president of the Cook County board, the, um, police chiefs, all the police chiefs, the public defender, to meet on a regular basis, mm -hmm. just to meet once a month, mm -hmm. and to begin to develop a, uh, an objective. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you, what do you want? What do all of us want to see happen? You know, I think we all want, we want less crime, right? We want uh, fairness. We want accountability. And how do we get there? Mm -hmm. You know, but these people don't even talk to each other. Exactly. You know, right, they, right. They, except to criticize each other in the press. Mm -hmm. um, we want, you know, another thing we want that has to happen is you have to bring everyday people into the process. Mm -hmm. So, you know, your your community has to be brought into the pro you can't talk down to people. Right. You have to bring those people to the table mm -hmm. that are being actually affected by the shit that goes on in this city. So you're you're sort of arguing for policy that 
mirrors what you do as a practicing defense attorney. You listen, you um, respond, and you assume a humanity in people that they don't have to prove right. in order to be at the table. Right. And then you have to have a vision. I mean, what do you, you know, how do you want it to look? What do you want it to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we we want, or I want to live in a society where everybody is respected. Right. You know, where it's not, doesn't depend on how much money you have. It doesn't depend on your race, your gender. You know, everybody has a basic level of respect. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I don't think that's Pollyannish. No, I don't no, no, think no. that's overly idealistic. I mean, I think that's basic humanity. Yeah, it's idealistic in the sense that it's an ideal, but it's not idealistic in the sense that it's unattainable. You know, I mean, I think that's really important. You and I talked 20, 25 years ago a couple of times um, publicly about juvenile justice. And, you know, that's another area where we can chip away at this mass incarceration problem that, that if we begin to see kids as kids and not as super predators, um, kids as kids who make mistakes. And one of the things that's always struck me living in the south side of Chicago is that when my kids, white middle-class kids, would make mistakes, they'd be reprimanded and asked to correct themselves. And a kid just three miles away is suddenly caught up in the jaws of the criminal justice system. So those things are not are essential to undo, not easily undone, but essential. And and we've made a lot of progress in that area. A lot we have a lot further to go, but we've made a lot of progress, yeah. right? I mean, you know, there was a time in this country where you know kids were being given given the death penalty, right? <laughs> you know? Right, and you were involved in stopping uh, yeah, that. Yeah, there was a time when routinely kids were sentenced to life without parole. Right, still pockets of the country where that's happened. Hope in Illinois, it's receded. Right. Uh, we still have ways to go, but we're 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 chipping you know, away. Yeah, yeah. The idea, and that's you know, knowledge, science, you know, bringing truth to to light. Right. You know, I mean, all parents know that that kids are not fully formed, uh, um, and you know, most adults know that too intuitively. Yeah, and and all kids fuck up. I don't know anybody. I don't know any kid who hasn't broken the law, made mistakes, done stupid things, done cruel things. And yet, um, some kids have the opportunity to recover and other kids do not. And that's one of the great, great injustices. You know, when I think about the reforms that are on the table, and I wonder, you know, again, how we merge them, how we bring them together in a mighty stream. But things like categorical um, commutation, things like aging out uh, of prison, what of those kinds of reforms, what do you think, where do you think the pressure points are? Well, I think it's, you know, we're in this sort of, um, it's, what's the word, culture war conundrum um, where People, um, even though smart people can recognize, you know, logical, common sense solutions to problems, they're not willing to make the the change because they don't want to appear to be, you know, giving in to yeah. the liberals or to right. the left or, right. you know, stupid 
stuff like that. But, you know, I think so what we have to do, we have to continue, you know, you know, always the students used to say, well, what should we do? And I exactly. said, well, you have to educate yourselves about the problem. You have to organize together in groups and you have to agitate for change. Yeah. I say, agitate, educate, organize and agitate. Exactly. Simple, you know. Simple to say, hard to hard do. Hard to do. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's, you know, I think a good formula for it, for change. Right. You know, and, not only do you educate yourselves, but you educate your friends and and even your not so good friends. You know, you bring the level of discourse up to a you know a conscious, educated conversation. Right. You know, and talk about the facts, and that's how you. And then you organize, right. and then you get you know you agitate for change. You mentioned. Um you know, the the uh, education and the importance of education. Critical race theory is part of the culture wars right now. And maybe you'd say just a word or two about critical race theory. We both know Derek Bell and, and the great, you know, intellectual contribution he made. But it was. You went to law school before before that was on the agenda. You're right. I, I remember... Uh coming back to when I came back to the UFC in the uh, uh, 90s, you know, I had taught there in, like I said, the mid 70s. And then I left and I came back in, I think, 91 or 92. And uh, I read an article uh, by Cheryl Harris. I don't know if you remember Cheryl Harris. And it was uh, a critical race theory piece. And I called her up. And I said, Cheryl, what in the hell is critical race theory? <laughs> yep. This was 90, 91, 92. Yeah, yeah. And she sat me down and she gave me, you know. And then I did did more and more reading. And, you know, it's basically... A theory that says um, you need to analyze policy um, through a racial lens. Right. That's basically what, what it is. And it's illegal, you know, through a racial legal lens. And, uh, you know, so it's ap- the applicability to kindergarten or to elementary school, you know, or, you know, that the idea that people are teaching this, you know, in, in, in second grade is just ridiculous. Right. I you understand. Know? I mean, I think that, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, on the other hand, I also think that the, the brilliance of Derek Bell's initial textbook was to say, you can't really understand anything about the law. Just like as, as um, uh, uh, Tony Morrison says you can't understand American literature if you don't see the African American experience. Often it's hidden in the corner, often it's a little shadow in the plot, but it's there. And there's no way to talk about America without talking about race as central. And so Bell's genius was to say it doesn't matter what you're talking about in the law, if you don't 
put a racial lens on it, you're seeing only part of the picture. And the funny thing is, I feel in education, I I know all the yahoos are going after it as if we're indoctrinating kids, but they're really using it in a demagogic way. They're saying, we don't want kids talking about race. We don't want kids talking about gender. We don't want kids talking about women's rights. I mean, it's pretty transparent to me. On the other hand, I look at education, which is my world, and I think you can't understand school reform in Chicago, uh, you know, the struggle for a decent education, if you don't understand the black experience, if you don't understand what Reconstruction was about. As W.B. Du Bois said, public education is a Negro idea. I mean, wow, you know, and it's true. So what is it about? And then you think about the historic black colleges and white do-gooders in the North, philanthropists saying, this is how we should educate black kids. And those black kids both accepting and rejecting the model that they were given. And and I think all that makes for me, makes critical race theory really useful for me, I guess. Very, very, very much so. And useful and, and necessary, right? right. Uh, in order to understand, you know, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, you know, uh, it's so it's so sad it that is sad. people can use um demagoguery to just trash a uh, trash an idea and 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 putting ignorance on a pedestal i mean i really think that and that's why i don't think it's going to go uh in all the the dire ways it's going to go i think we're going to fight back and win yeah i do too but i want to ask you about two people as we wind down and uh one is um Hershella Conyers, who's been, every time I see Hershella, I think of you, um, because you were, I'm not sure, but you guys were partners in in law, partners in uh, a lot of the work. So maybe tell me where Hershella's doing and 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 how, how she is, and also how you all worked together over the years. Yeah, I met Hershella, it's funny, I met Hershella Conyers in 1970. Seven. Oh wow. Okay. That's when Zaid was born. That's yeah. forty five years ago. I was uh I was working for the Criminal Defense Consortium of Cook County, which was a um um organization of six neighborhood law offices set up as a counter to the public defender's office. Mm-hmm. Because at that time, the public defenders, in order to work for the public defender's office, you had to know somebody. Mm. You had to come to the office with a, you know, a letter, a note, uh, an okay from an alderman or, a, you know, political hat type person. Um, despite the fact that the there were some great lawyers in the office, Jim Doherty was the public defender during the... 60s and 70s. And he was a great lawyer. Jim Doherty, uh, I, I remember going to a seminar that he was teaching when I was a real young lawyer. And he was just a fantastic, committed, dedicated person. But somehow he got old and he, <laughs> you know, as we all do, and he um, kind of turned the office over to other people. Uh-huh. And he was kind of the figurehead, but he wasn't really doing the day-to-day. And they just screwed it up. Mm. So anyway, the consortium comes in. We got got $2 million in federal funds. Marshall Hartman, Fred Cohn, and Shelvin Singer were the three. And Nancy Goldberg 
were the four sort of titular heads of the program. They got this LEAA money from the Department of Justice, Uh and they set up six neighborhood offices, four lawyers, a social worker, investigator, two secretaries in each office, Woodlawn, uh, Westtown, Evanston, Harvey, uh, Uptown, and uh, Lakeview, Mm -hmm. six neighborhoods. Um, the, each office was supposed to be connected to a law school. Uh. So I'm in D.C. I just finished my fellowship with Neighborhood Legal Services. Somebody called me and said, well, they knew you always wanted to do criminal defense work. There's this new program, Criminal Defense Consortium. You should apply. I applied. I got hired. And the interview session was so funny. I flew in from D.C., and I'm interviewing with Marshall Hartman, Fred Cohn, and Shelvin Singer. Uh-huh. And I hardly got a word in edgewise, <laughs> you know, because they, you know, right, they, right. they were arguing with each other. But in, anyway, uh, I got hired. I got hired in the Evanston office. But, you know, as a criminal defense lawyer back then, your goal is always to get to 26 in California because that's where the action is, you know, to have a jury trial, a murder case, mm-hmm. 26 in California. And I'm in Evanston. And I'm riding the circuit in the in the uh, northern suburbs. Um, and aside, uh, I, one of my first cases is some police station in Skokie, where they have a courtroom on, on the first floor, and then the police station that surrounds the courtroom. Um, I got a, I got a case. Um, kid is charged with uh, some sort of retail fraud or something. I show up to court. I got my I'm a brand new lawyer. I got on my brand new lawyer suit, my brand new lawyer suitcase, briefcase. I walk into court and uh, my client's not there. And they call the case, and I run up to the to the to the to the bench. The judge looks down at me and he says, "Where's your lawyer?" Ah, <laughs> damn. And I look around. I said, damn, I'm the only black person in this court- <laughs> damn. courtroom with a suit and tie on. Yeah. Uh, you know, but anyway. Uh, wow. But anyway, so I'm I'm there for a year. I want to go to Woodlawn, the Woodlawn office, right. because that way I can get 26 in California. The Woodlawn office is connected to the University of Chicago. Right. So in order to be a lawyer in the Woodlawn office, you got to be approved by the University of Chicago. I go down there for my interview, and they decide to uh, interview the interview process. You have to meet with students. Oh, nice. That's when I meet Herschella Conyers. She was she's, a student at the U of C. She was a student at the U of C. And so you're a bit older than her. Yeah, I'm probably five years. Okay. Yeah. But you've worked together from then on. Pretty much. Wow. Uh, we worked. She's she, a hell of a lawyer. She's I, a hell of a lawyer. Yeah. Great lawyer, great heart, yeah. and, you know, sharp. Um, is she still a, Is she? She's still there. I think she's going to do a, maybe another year okay. before she retires. Yeah. I talked to her at the Gideon celebration that I mentioned. That's right. Yeah. She was, she was there. Uh, yeah, she, she's a UFC undergrad and law school uh person and um just like I, bernadine yeah yeah when i came back to dc when i came back to chicago to be the public defender of cook county 
um, I kind of promoted her to uh, a supervisory position in the office. And then when I left Cook County to go back to the UFC to teach, I asked her to come back. Got it. Uh, to work with me in the criminal. Great admirer of hers. And, you know, one of the funny things is you and I have found ourselves backing prosecutors like Kim Fox and mm-hmm. Chase Boudin. Mm-hmm. Kind of weird, you know. It, it is. Big turnaround it is. Um, to find ourselves, you know, wanting to make, again, an incremental, not a decisive, but an incremental change. The other woman in your life that I was going to just ask you about is Sakari Stone. How's she doing? Sakari's doing great. Yeah. Uh, she, you know. You know, I'm a big admirer, as you know. As a, Yeah. Uh, and she's an admirer of yours too. She, uh, as you know, she has her own little business yep. in Oakland, yep. tech business and uh, tech and social justice. Right. And uh, she's doing great. Do you get out there much? I haven't gotten out there at all. It's funny because we get out there because both Malik and Chase are in the Bay Area. Right. So we'll be out there in May and we'll, we'll give we'll her a holler. Make sure you holler oh, at her. Yeah. We she's will. going to uh, Argentina next month. Nice. Uh, April 15th, 16th for about 10 days for a seminar. And then she's going to Portugal in May. Girl's on the move. She's on the move. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we're going to wind up, but I, I, I certainly appreciate your spending an hour with me talking about the most important issues we're facing today. And I, I have to put one plug in, which you've heard me say before, it's a broken record. Your story your life story is an important story. I want you to sit down and write it down at some point. You know, I've said this to you before, but I think you could write a brilliant memoir um, based, stringing together a dozen of your cases and, um, you know, call it listening to the people um, because that's what you do. And uh, I think that you've not only learned a lot, but you've taught a lot in, in the last decades and have nothing but appreciation for you. Well, you know, it's a mutual admiration society. There you go. <laughs> so, what are you going to do? But, but thanks. I, I, thanks for taking the time to invite me to, to talk. I really appreciate it. We'll get it on. And um, meanwhile, love to your family. We'll talk soon. Okay. Peace. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this exact moment on the wobbling clock of the universe. Let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in projects that reimagine, repair, and rebuild this broken world. Let's try to stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger and their generative and provocative podcast, Ergo. To co-conspirators Roxana Espos, Light Ali, and Palace Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and try to always open your mouth for the mute and fight for the rights of the destitute. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.